Hi, this is Jim from Safety Wars. Before we start the program, I want to make sure everyone understands that we often talk about OSHA and EPA citations, along with some other regulatory actions from other agencies, legal cases, and criminal activity. Everyone is innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Proposed fines are exactly that, and they are often litigated, reduced, or vacated. We use available public records, news accounts, and press releases. We cannot warranty or guarantee the details of any of the stories we share, since we are not directly involved with these stories, at least not most of the time. Enjoy the show. This, this, this show is brought to you by Safety FM. From the border of liberty and prosperity and the highway to the north, this is Jim Polzel with Safety Wars. Uh, we have a pre-recorded program tonight. Uh, we are releasing the last interview from the International Conference on Climate Change that was held in Atlanta, uh, Orlando, not Atlanta, Orlando, uh, Florida, last month. It's an interview from someone from the Committee for a Constructive Tomorrow, a.k.a. CFACT, at CFACT.org. Her name is Shakira Jackson. She's a very inspiring person. And this was a very inspiring interview. I think uh, the future of the environmental movement is in good hands with this one. Uh, we're also going to have uh, a couple of other podcasts uh, previously recorded uh, that we're going to put in at the end of this interview. We look forward to be back here tomorrow night on the 31st. Okay, we are here with Shakira Jackson from CFAC. And uh, she's a podcaster. She's also been involved in a lot of stuff over the last couple of years. Yes. You're fairly young. It can't be too young. Mm-hmm. Not too uh, long. Not too long, but not it too can't short. be too long. <laughs> right. So uh, we're here in Orlando at the Heartland Institute uh, Conference, International Conference on Climate Change. I was a delegate here, what they called them back in the days, and... 2008. Wow. So, took some time off from all of that, and we're interviewing people here. Uh, we were we interviewed Lord Monken. Hopefully, we'll be getting some more interviews. So we have Shakira from CFAC. She approached me on this. So, Shakira, tell us about yourself and CFAC. Absolutely. So, CFAC is an environmental organization. We focus specifically from issues ranging from sustainability, nuclear energy, etc. We have a Treasons Fellow program that we do that really just inspires uh, you to get more involved in the environmental movement. One of the pillars also to our organization, we have a podcast slash video cast that we also do called Capital Pink. And basically what that does is helps uh, spread awareness about censorship on college campuses. And even outside of that, we focus specifically on educating the public about different issues such as nuclear energy, ESG, you name it, we got it. Um, and yeah. How long have you been involved with this? So I started out as a fellow. Um, I was a fellow back in 2019 and then I, you know, graduated from undergrad and now, you know, currently working full time for the organization. But after that, um, I pretty much jump started my entire career with CFAC from, you know, testifying um, to the EPA, doing things that involved really just hands on activism. So, um, yeah, that's that's pretty much my, my timeline. Where there. From? The University of Pittsburgh at Bradford. Really? Mm-hmm. So, usually you just don't jump into that. Yes. <laughs> usually, uh, take it from an old political guy. 
it's a long, long line, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, with me, I uh, went to NJIT, New Jersey Institute of Technology. That's where I did my graduate work. I've been working in on environmental cleanups and stuff way, way, way before that. Yeah. Not happening. So, what drew you to the whole environmental thing? Sure. For lack of a better word. Mm-hmm. So I found, you know, my first year of undergrad, I was I was always politically inclined, you know, wanted to learn more about politics, but it wasn't until my first year of undergrad where, you know, I joined the environmental science club and I started seeing that, you know, we were having conversations, but a lot of people were kind of, you know, going back and forth and nobody wanted to give anyone the floor. Were you, yeah, were you, uh, do you have an educational background in environmental science or was it more political? More political. Um, I didn't right. study environmental science, although if I could do undergrad all over again, I would. Uh, but I'm I, apparently... Uh, yeah, I teach it. <laughs> you I teach environmental science? Uh, oh, yeah, my goodness. <laughs> all right. And this is what I tell people. Unless you have an angle, mm. don't go into it. Because this is what's going on. You have in uh, New Jersey, where I grew up, and I live in New York now, you have something like 20-some colleges offering environmental science, mm. environmental studies, all levels, right? Yeah. PhD, undergrad, associates, what have you. And masters, there are not, and they're graduating 300 to 400 people a year. There are not 300 to 400 jobs in New Jersey for that major. Mm-hmm. So unless you have an in somewhere or you want to go into something more what you're talking about in the policy end, right, and everything else, it's very difficult. Yeah. Right? And Or you're going to have to go into a related field like safety. So don't feel bad you didn't have that. But, you know, one of the biggest things I find is that there's a lot of indoctrination happening. You know, even with poli-sci, and I have friends, you know, who study environmental science, and they're like, man, you know, the professor just, you know, pushing their views, and it's like, eh, I don't know, you know. Yeah, very true. (laughs) Very sad, you know, very, very sad, especially because you're paying all this money. I think, for me, the reason why I decided to go to college in the first place was because I wanted to expand my critical thinking and analytical skills. But getting there, it's like, well, yeah, I, 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 I know that you have your specific stance, but allow me to think for myself, you know, allow me right. to be able to come up with my own viewpoints on things, you know, versus you just shoving your own onto me. You know? Okay, so this is like me. I'm going to ask you a question. I might offend you. I'm going to apologize. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Again, all right, so when I was in college, right, a long, long, long time ago, even graduate school, which wasn't that long ago, they uh, graduated in 2003, so 20 years ago, uh, African Americans in the environmental field did not exist. I mean, uh, you go, uh, you know, in my major, I went to a small uh, college in South Jersey. Now it's not so small. Now it's not a college anymore, it's a university. And you go to different events and different things, different activities, you don't see African-Americans in environmental yep. stuff. You, since you're a recent graduate, has that, is that your thing? And how have, what have people said with you specifically? I mean, because I tell you what, CPAC's a great organization. I've heard about them for a long time, seen them at different events, things of that nature. What was the reaction for you to be 
mm-hmm. and the environmental sure. movement, you yeah. know, whatever we're calling this thing. Mm-hmm. So for me, I mean, like you said, there's no secret that the the equity and you know equality, gender equality versus you know the, even speaking to ethnics and race, all those things, the gaps have al- has always exist. Um, but right. I find it even with me growing up. So I'm originally from the city of Philadelphia, and one of the things that I really promote or hone myself in doing is working with the local legislators of the city of Philadelphia, such as our mayor and you know people that sit on city council. Just recently, I hosted an event in the city of Philadelphia um, specifically called Color Girls Go Green. And my specific target audience was to get more minorities, people of color, um, you know, just educated about environmental issues and what you can do to kind of help tackle this. Because you're right, there's definitely a gap. Um, And I think it's just a lack of education. Um, You know, when you look at the education structure, specifically with the public and charter schools in the city of Philadelphia, um, you know, they definitely don't necessarily tackle this, these these environmental issues head on. And maybe students aren't even motivated to get into the field because of that gap. And when you consider uh, no, uh, environmental justice field. Yes. And everything. There are a lot of issues there mm-hmm. with uh, people of color. Yep. Right. Two of the things. Flint, Michigan, number one, with the water crisis. Mm-hmm. Number two, Mississippi has an ongoing uh, water crisis. Yes. Uh, several areas there. And when you consider a lot of the inner city neighborhoods and everything, there's still being impacted by uh, ashwagandha lead, mm-hmm. lead gasoline, and the soil contaminated soil, ground fields, and everything else. Yeah. I think it's a natural tie-in, especially if you're in uh, an environmental movement. This is a natural tie-in for those communities. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, that's, how would you describe yourself? Conservative, libertarian, non-affiliated, liberal? How would you describe yourself? Yeah, so currently I identify as a conservative libertarian. Um, specifically, my views, they shaped from my two parents. I think, um, you know, my, my mom, she's very much libertarian, but my dad's very, very conservative. And, you know, just so happened I am a merge of the two, <laughs> you know, uh, 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 a representation of the two. But I think specifically, you know, when it comes to different policies put forth, I find myself, you know, like I said, putting in and honing in all my conservative and libertarian values because, you know, at the end of the day, I do believe in freedom. I do believe in, you know, justice and being able to stand up for what you believe in and not being censored and not being, you know, and, and just putting yourself out there and being able to exercise your rights freely. And so, you know, relating this back to the environmental issue, I think I think at this point and at this rate, it's not going to come down to, you know, what specific ideology you have or, you know, where you stand because at the end of the day, the, the climate crisis or whatever, you know, folks want to identify it as whether you're libertarian conservative democrat doesn't matter it's going to impact us all so you know i i think that you know now we're living in a time where identities are everything, right? It's like, oh, yeah, I identify as this, but in reality, and that's one of the reasons I feel like drives me to, you know, why I care about environmental issues more than social issues because, you know, I'm so tired of people like, you know, saying like, oh, it's, it's the label this, label that, and I get, you know, you take different stance on different things, but there are there are more things, I feel like, that are more prominent um, that people should be focusing on, you know, outside of that, and you can even relate that back to, you know, um, it was just, well, we're still in Black History Month, right? So I just did a, an interview, um, that literally a few days ago a guy was asking me he goes well you know how do you feel about black history month and should black history month be a thing and i'm like i i would rather much identify as as just an american you know take my ethnicity take my you know take all of that out of it none of that matters i am here i'm proud i'm a freedom fighter i'm a patriot and that's all i you know would love to be labeled as i know uh, i spoke to another uh 
person here, African American uh, woman. She didn't want to come on here. She wasn't. She was more of a volunteer. Sure. We have we're at the International Climate Change Conference in Orlando here, and she echoed the same thing. She's very much concerned with the environment. Uh, she does not interested in uh, in uh, in meaningless. I believe that's where she used environmental stuff. Mm-hmm. I like a lot of what we're discussing here. Concerned about clean water, clean air, yep. impacting the community in a positive way and everything else. Now, where do you see this going in 10 years? The whole movement where you're involved in, what we're, we're discussing here and everything. Where do you see that in 10 years? For five years or two, and make a time frame. Sure. So some of the work that I'm doing with CFACT is mobilizing youth to spread awareness about different issues such as, you know, what's going on with ESG or what's going on with climate change, et cetera. And so the hope is that more young people will start to take initiative because after all, you know, people always say as cliche as it may sound, you know, young people are the future and indeed they are. So, you know, really kind of honing in and educating them now. So when the those 10 years kind of hit, you know, you have the generation now where they've been studying this, they know this like the back of their head. And so now we're putting in policies, you know, that, that matter and that are, that are pushing our, you know, our stance forward, because as of right now, I don't think the, and it's not just just take credit away from the generations that are in charge right now, but I I do think to some capacity, it's going to be up to, you know, the youth right now to to say, well, you know, what's happening now, I I kind of, I see it for what it is, taking initiative, learning about how you can spread awareness and, you know, cancel or not even really cancel, but, you know, just combat some of these issues that we're seeing within our environment, whether that be hydropower or solar or nuclear, et cetera, because it it gets, it gets very, very big, very fast, um, but that's what I would say. Yeah, as Lord Monta had uh, mentioned earlier today, I believe he had a lecture here, but he, I had him on for like an hour and ten minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he <laughs> out, laid out, if I spoke to, and he, no one here other than him, it would, it's worth it for me to be here today. But sure. Now we got you. Basically, we talk about sustainability, mm-hmm. right? Environmental sustainability. And, uh, uh, no, there are different labels on it, but this all originated in 1992, the Rio de Janeiro Conference on the Environment, and that's another story in itself. We could do a whole long history on that. Mm-hmm. But the whole thing with sustainable development. What it turned out with him, one of his points was the environmental movement today is not sustainable as what these energy policies mm. Very, very, uh, it's not sustainable for all those reasons. One of them being is that we do not have the natural resources or the infrastructure to create all this stuff. Solar panels, wind turbines, even he, he talked about the power grid can't support this. Everything, all this capacity, you're adding more capacity than what you can manage. Sure. Sustainable development, how do you, what's your opinion on that? Not um, necessarily energy issues and climate change, but on everything. Since you don't know about this, so you didn't have to go through the beginning. Sure, sure. You've had to deal with it the last couple of years. What's your opinion on it? Well, I think when it comes to the sustainability issue, I tend to think about it more from, you know, a micro and then going to the macro level. Um, Sometimes we, you know, when people first think of the word 
environmental, you know, policies. Like, well, what does that mean to you? You know, people go straight to climate change. And although, hence, you know, this conference, you know, climate change, whatever. But I do think there are other issues out there that we could be we could be focusing on. And, you know, thinking about the pillars that, that make up why climate change, whether you believe it exists or whether you don't, um, you know, is, is, a, is a hot topic or, or just... A, a talking point in general, right? And even spreading awareness to, you know, how you can use reusable resources. And like you mentioned earlier about the whole solar panel things, and, you know, there are a lot of people who own homes who, you know, don't have, um, you know, or just don't know that the little things that they could be doing, like, um, you know, importing a, you know, solar panel or whatever the case may be, creating a garden or, um, you know, doing those small pillar things that, you may seem small, but they're really making a big difference. You know, I organized a lot of litter cleanups. Um, I, I, I have that, I did not dorm more my community. So I think that when you think about um, what sustainability means and what that looks like, it is those small things leading up to the big scope of things. Um, and, and personally, my opinion on, you know, what legislators have been doing, I don't think that they've been kind of keeping the momentum going when it comes to um, the idea of sustainability, right? I think um, when you think about how different policies have been put forth to the floor and whether they've gone or they've passed or, you know, even just the topic of conversation. It seems as though our legislators are always focused specifically more on social issues rather than um, the question of environmental issues. And it's not to say that those social issues are, aren't important, but I do think to some capacity, right, you're not, if you don't have a world to, to live on to, you know, yes. to, to talk about these social issues, then why, you know what I mean? Why right. even do it well, in this? <laughs> no, I'm a Pedologist, a soil scientist, uh, mm -hmm. uh, maybe, uh, I've been following on LinkedIn. It all comes down to six inches of topsoil. Mm. That's what it is. If you cannot protect those six inches of topsoil, there ain't no food. Yep. There is no clean water. Mm. There is nothing out yep. there. That's what we need to, I think, we've lost sight of that. Oh, yeah. Um, so, and, uh, so, anything else you want to add to this? Or, yeah, I think really good. Indeed. I agree. Well, I mean, I would just end with some words of encouragement because, you know, hence what I do. I, I love to motivate people. I love to get people out and joining the movement. It would just be to you know, make sure whatever you're doing, um, you know, really just hone in on it and really start to reflect on why you care about specific issues, specific policies. I think that's so, so important, especially living in this day and age. And if you're a young person listening to this, I'm really just encouraging you to join the environmental movement because it's so prominent. And whether you have an interest or background in environmental science or you know environmental policy it doesn't matter like take the leap you know one research a day or whatever however you want to do it like that could go a really long way you don't necessarily have to be the person on the you know the, the front lines advocating for this stuff but we need all the help that we can get and I think it's this conference right here which is you know mobilizing people from across the world that care about specific issues these are this is the grassroots and where it starts and so um, yeah just go out fight go green and uh, hope to see you guys fight, soon. Fight that safety war? Yes. Fight that safety war indeed. <laughs> Environmental safety. And I'll add this. Don't be manipulated the Yes. Ugh. So, thanks a lot, Shakira. This has been great. And I look forward to seeing you at more of these events. Thank you. Uh, thank you. This, this, this show is brought to you by Safety FM.
The following program is rated for mature audiences and may contain adult language, adult situations, and frank safety discussions. The names and certain details have been changed to protect the safe and the unsafe. But believe me, every item in here is true. Cultural Pushback Strategies Faced by Safety Professionals Today on Safety Wars Ultimately, in any discussion with younger safety professionals and managers, the question comes up as to how do I manage a workforce that seems to be 100% against safety? How do I engage my workforce and try to change corporate culture often when I'm getting so much pushback by the corporate culture? The corporate culture refuses to change and we have a horrible one when it comes to safety. I always refer people back to Rules for Radicals by Saul Alinsky. It turns out that no one ever reads them or follows it up, so I tend to teach it myself. I offer no solutions, you gotta find out what those are for yourself, but I do identify some behaviors and some stories that I have on each one of these. Who was Saul Alinsky? He was a community organizer in Chicago that witnessed the violence on the late 1960s at the Democratic National Convention. He went out to the crowd and said, look, you're doing it all wrong, and to effect change, you don't do it by violence, but by organization, hard work, and struggle. When I began reading these rules, I noticed that these rules are some of what we have to deal with as safety professionals. We're trying to change corporate culture a lot of times. We're trying to change it to a safer one, more productive one, one where everybody works together, the best they can, of course. So, I also realized that it was being used by us, not only against us, but by us, against the workforce. This ends up in a situation where everybody hates each other. So I spent a couple of years thinking about this stuff and presented it as a one-half-hour filler to a Haswapper refresher course for young managers over at New Jersey City University who asked about how to manage safety when you're dealing with a workforce that seems to be 100% against them. It was one of the few mic drop moments that I have had in my career. I've also presented this to several organizations, so if you're easily triggered, this might not be the discussion for you. By the way, we should not use the word enemy when dealing with our co-workers, but it's in with the original text, and I want it to be true to the original text. Rule number one, power is not only what you have, but what the enemy thinks you have. As a safety professional, you're hired to help a company with a problem or issue. You may be there for long term, short term, you may be coming in as a consultant, doesn't matter what it is. If you are lucky, the company has a well-established program and a fully self-actualized team. If you're not lucky, it seems like I was not very lucky, you are probably being brought in to manage a problem that is best handled by human resources. You realize that the company needs some type of cultural change. So how does this rule manifest itself? This could be as simple as, I have worked here for a very long time, Jim, and I am a insert your favorite relationship or association. Could be brother, father, son, daughter, mother, doesn't matter. Then it's followed up with something along the lines of, leave me alone and don't rock the boat or I'll make trouble. This can be done overtly or it can be implied. Often this is the reason why a company hires you to manage their problems. The end result is that you cannot do your job effectively 
and you lose it. The problem staff or team keeps theirs and what happens ultimately? People continue to get hurt or get injured or die at some places. You don't do your job. You get frustrated, you get angry, you get bitter and everything else. And you go on to your next assignment repeating the same issues again and again and again. You find out that the folks who gave you this idea and made this threat to you, don't rock the boat, are not well respected in the organization to begin with, and they basically lied and intimidated you. So what do you do? You try to identify these situations early and handle them early before they get out of hand. Number two and number three go together. Number two is never go outside the expertise of your people, or yourself for that matter. And number three, whenever possible, go outside of the expertise of the enemy. So you can see how these two go together. So never go outside the expertise of your people. Provide expertise and advice about what you know. Tread carefully into areas you have no expertise in. It's better off that you say, hey, look, I'm not sure on that, let me double check. And always double check if you're not sure, triple check. Get someone who does have the expertise. The worst thing that you could be in, among others, right? One of the worst is you might be told that you are wrong in the worst way and it destroys your credibility. They won't listen to you ever again. But that's what, what you gotta do. Whenever possible, go outside the expertise of the enemy. One strategy that people try to undermine you with is to find out what your strengths and weaknesses are. They probe what those are. Then they concentrate on what you know. This often becomes an old-fashioned game of distraction. A good example of this is what I run into all the time. But I got a little bit wiser for it over the years. You're auditing one trade. You mentioned that there is a problem there, minor problem. Or it may be a major problem that they really don't want to address because it's going to take time to fix. And you're told, why are you worrying about this? You should be worrying about whatever's going on upstairs. They're doing some type of real activity. Maybe it's a forklift operation or another operation where someone's working very unsafely. So you go upstairs and you find out there is nobody up there. That this is not happening. And they just send you on a wild goose chase. For a good laugh, Google South Park, the Chewbacca defense, or South Park Chef Aid or Chewbacca defense. You'll find a huge number of articles on this strategy online, and it's made it into pop culture. What is the Chewbacca defense? It refers to making a legal argument, the aim of which is to deliberately distract and confuse the jury with the use of a red herring. Sometimes these traps are unavoidable, but you need to be aware of them. In our next broadcasts, we're going to continue with this theme of Saul Alinsky's Rules for Radicals and Rules for Radicals Part 2. For Safety Wars, this is Jim Polzel.
The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the host and its guest and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the company. Examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are only examples. They should not be utilized in the real world as the only solution available as they are based only on very limited and dated open source information. Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the company. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored in a retrieval system, or transmitted in any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic, recording, or otherwise, without prior written permission of the creator of the podcast, Jay Allen. This, this, this show is brought to you by Safety FM. The following program is rated for mature audiences and may contain adult language, adult situations, and frank safety discussions. The names and certain details have been changed to protect the safe and the unsafe. But believe me, every item in here is true. I hope you enjoyed Rules Radical. So, like I said, you need to be aware of these strategies. Be very careful in using them. I don't recommend you use them at all, but you need to be aware of them. Rule number four. Make the enemy live up to its own book of rules. Before enforcing a rule, make sure you're going to be the one obeying it also. Don't make a rule you don't intend to enforce. This is also a legal problem if you have a rule book that says you're going to do X, Y, and Z and you don't do it. You blow your credibility with everybody and it does not have a good outcome. So this could be as easy as telling someone to wear a hard hat, they're not wearing one. Today we're dealing with masks. How does this also manifest itself? Here's a classic one. If you need to do a gas test of a confined space continuously, and you decide not to do it because it's really not necessary, management will always drag out that thing you didn't do in one of your annual reviews. Well, you were supposed to be enforcing X, Y, and Z rule, and you didn't do it, and you ruined the corporate culture. It doesn't matter that the management told them to disobey you, for example, or disobey a rule or not pay attention to safety. And it's just as important not to make a rule you cannot follow or enforce. I mention that again. So what are some rules that you cannot follow and cannot enforce? One of them is decontamination of individuals. I was actually asked to enforce a decontamination policy at a hazardous waste site. I said, well, we make sure that everybody goes through the glove wash and the glove rinse, but are they taking showers? Well, guess what? I'm not going in the shower, and I'm not going to watch them take a shower. That's what their intent was, was for me to go in and watch people take showers. Why? Because then we can be brought up on a sexual harassment type situation or something like that and make me be undermined, make me look bad on site that now I'm watching people take showers. You really can't make this stuff up. Rule number five, ridicule is man's most potent weapon. There really is no defense against it. When does this happen? It's when you have potential to achieve or when you have already gotten success. People who use ridicule often do it behind your back anonymously. It's also a leading indicator of jealousy, 
wanting to take someone down, it's often to get you to lose your temper. And if you lose your temper, that's what their end goal is, is to make you look foolish. What's the strategy for dealing with this? They are varied and many. What I try to do is not take myself too seriously and don't show that I get upset, even if I do get upset. Getting upset invites more ridicule. Trying to get the leadership of the team on board with safety, and usually the group will follow the leadership, and that's a subject for another broadcast. Don't ever let them see you sweat. Rules 6 and 7. A good tactic is one your people enjoy, and number seven, a tactic that drags on too long becomes a drag. These rules, these rules work to our advantage and sometimes disadvantage. Learn an activity that the workforce enjoys. It's easy to do, hopefully is cheap and gives effective results. When you use an old safety program that does not work anymore, or is stale, or the team can't relate to it, you will have failure every time. Rule number eight, keep the pressure on. Many rules can be used against you or by you. If something bad happens or if someone finds a weak spot, they focus on it, repeating the attack or casually mentioning it, especially at inopportune moments, like during your annual review. Once someone finds your weak spot, they will focus on it and try to undermine you. What do you do about this? Know your weak spots ahead of time and make sure they are fixed or at least you have a way to manage them. If the work is being deliberately undermined by your workforce, document it and then follow it up with human resources. These situations will often make it into your annual review which I mentioned a couple of times. Manage correctly, you have a defense. Maybe you can manage it, maybe you could fix it. This is one reason why we track near misses, good catches, mishaps, and etc. So we can fix them, so we can prevent injuries in the workplace, so we can actually do our job. Number nine, the threat is usually more terrifying than the thing itself. This is the case of your imagination being your own worst enemy. People who have been at rock bottom and have worked their way out of it will tell you that rock bottom isn't so scary after all. Something not being scary can't be used as a threat. If you are not intimidated, you completely disarm the other party, the other person. Number 10. The major premise for tactics is the development of operations that will maintain a constant pressure upon the opposition. These tactics manifest themselves in many ways, including calling you on days off to ask questions that can be left until their return. On the same day, people coordinate and come to you with all their problems. Usually, this is not a coincidence. Changing paperwork, losing paperwork, and then blaming everybody else, especially you. Stealing resources. It could be something as simple as a dry erase marker for a presentation to taking critical equipment general sabotage, and favoritism. What do you do? Continue to do your job and be professional. One result of these tactics is to get a reaction out of you. Then the perpetrators play the victim card and report you as the problem. Document these situations. Secure your own resources, documents, and equipment. Call people out professionally when they try these tactics. 
One time I had my desk repeatedly searched and things go missing. I noticed some of the items were on the vice president's desk. I reported to management that items from my desk were missing. This particular vice president gaslighted me. You can look at the previous episodes for this. And said, no one is going through your stuff. You are being ridiculous. The next week, I acquired a locking file cabinet to secure things. Two weeks later, the vice president said in front of several of my co-workers, I was looking for something in your desk, and I noticed your locked file cabinet. She was exposed for what she did, and what she denied doing, and everyone got a good laugh. If you push a negative, this is rule number 11, if you push a negative hard and deep enough, it will break through to its countersign. Make a negative into a positive. I had a shop steward complain to me that one of the other contractors on a project was allowed to break site rules without any type of repercussion. He told me that I should be arguing on his team's behalf in front of the people paying me, the general contractor. I knew that if I did as he asked on this issue, I would likely be thrown off the project. This was his main goal. I told him that his ideas had merit. And remember, we were in front of the entire workforce. We'll call him Charlie. I said, Charlie, you know, you're very good at arguing. Your points have a lot of validity. So why don't we go up in front of site management and I'll be right behind you, buddy. And you can argue these points and make these demands and everything for them or your workforce right? better than I can. He knew that if he did that, he would be thrown off the project and that the union, which he was an officer in, would be in a very precarious situation. The union workforce seemed satisfied with this whole thing. When he did not follow through, it made him look bad. What was the end result? He never confronted me in front of so many people again. I kept a cool head and it turned out in my favor. People will often make themselves into the victim, and this is what this guy was trying to do. Make himself into the victim and be the oppressor. You need to really watch out for this trap. Rule number 12. The price of a successful attack is a constructive alternative. What does this mean? Offer a solution. Just don't say something is wrong. Turn it into a positive. Offer a yes-if situation rather than a no-because. If you have no alternative plan, you look like your proverbial blowhard or malcontent. Rule number 13, pick the target, freeze it, personalize it, and polarize it. This is basically a team member dividing and conquering. There are several different ways of doing this, but it's essentially old-fashioned bullying. Some of the more obvious ways. Being excluded from meetings or not being invited to meetings, you probably should attend. Not having the correct equipment, breaking equipment, unreasonable time frames, rushing an accident investigation. That's one of the uh, classic ones. Not having resources, time, or personnel to do the job. Not budgeting professional training or development. Not having a scope of work for a contract. Colluding with others or simply bullying you. Overloading you with work, distracting you from duties, Team members doing work on projects you know nothing about, then making you responsible for them. Blindsiding you. Surprising you with information or situations that need your attention immediately, at least in their mind, or put you in a bad situation. 
There's not much you can do to counteract this except document it, report it to human resources, and considering moving on. Don't let these tactics get the best of you. Try to rise above it. Revenge or vindication are always fleeting, and these people are usually not worth your time, your effort, or your soul. What's my point? You need to get away from toxic work environments. A positive safety culture is very difficult to achieve as it is. Having a culture working against you makes it even more difficult. Hopefully these rules will give you information on what to expect in your role as a safety manager. When you are a manager, recognize these behaviors at your company and work towards cultivating people and managing them in a positive way. Changing the safety culture does not happen overnight. It takes years in the absence of a catastrophic event. Managing people in situations effectively will ultimately save lives and prevent injuries. Isn't that why we are all safety people in the end? For Safety Wars, this is Jim Polzel. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the host and its guest and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the company. Examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are only examples. They should not be utilized in the real world as the only solution available as they are based only on very limited and dated open source information. Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the company. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored in a retrieval system, or transmitted in any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic, recording, or otherwise, without prior written permission of the creator of the podcast, Jay Allen. This, this, this show is brought to you by Safety FM. Warning, the following podcast contains adult language, adult content, weird and unusual stories that all happen to be true. We didn't start this war on safety, but we're going to fight that safety war and we're going to win it. Warning, warning, you are about to hear a Jim Pulzel mega rant. You've been warned. Be the leaders that we need to be. Take that servile attitude and be empowered. You have the knowledge. You have the backbone, get it. If you don't have it, get the backbone. So this is gonna be a little bit different and maybe getting back to our roots here. Right, we've gotten away from our roots here on Safety Wars. Today, the safety show. Today on Safety Wars. I'm gonna share a story about a visit to my medical provider. I have a very important question later on and some comments on this. We've all been on jobs, especially if you grew up in the hazmat industry like I did, where there's a perception of little or no risk, and we seem like we're overprotected, which translates into wearing loads of PPE for no apparent reason. No apparent reason to the untrained and inexperienced, but in reality, we're protecting ourselves from likely potential hazards. We have it go the other way too. There is no respiratory hazard at all, by any means we can measure, calculate, speculate on, or anything else. Or we're using the wrong PPE, and what happens in the end? 
We lose credibility. Nobody wants to deal with us, right? We deal with that all the time. Yeah, you know, everybody makes a bad call every once in a while. That those uh, work modes that we talk about in previous episodes, well, everyone there's an error rate. Sometimes they make an error, but usually you can recover and everything else. Now let's talk about COVID. Right, you can recover from that previous situation because nobody gets hurt, right? Now let's talk about COVID. Right, I've been wanting to say this for a long time here, but you know what? I've been holding back, but we can't hold back anymore. We've had conflicting information from day one. Whether it's on masks or respirators, social distancing, you name it, there's conflict. There's inconsistencies. Right now, in a lot of our workplaces, a lot of our organizations, on our lives, in our setting, everywhere where we go, we're putting on what I call the safety show. What's the safety show? The show we put on just to look like we're looking safe and we're being safe. And it's doing Jack Gouveno. All right? You know what that means if you're a listener. It looks good. Maybe we get minimal protection out of it. I'm going to tell you about the trip to my doctor's office. Now, let's back up. We know that safety is not the absence of hazards. Zero accidents, zero illnesses, zero injuries, zero, 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 zero. We know that the modern definition is the presence of safeguards. Modern definition, how do these safeguards that we talk about work in a COVID world? We have vaccinations. Obligatory medical screening and clean temperature checks. Questions. Maybe something else. I don't know. Things happen with doctors. Medical situation. Socially distanced. We wash our hands. The medical facility I go to, immaculate. I tell you what, you could probably eat off the floor. Seriously. We have medical treatments available. More are on their way. Thank God. We try to stay home if we're sick, we're not feeling well. And of course, the masks. I'm going to tell you the truth. I don't wear a mask. And you say, what, Jim? You don't wear a mask? Come on. No, I don't wear a mask. I always wear a filtering face piece respirator. Either a NIOS certified N95 respirator or an FFP2 European certified or rated respirator without the valve on it. So I'm not putting viruses in the air if I'm infected. So all these respirators, N95, FFV2, KN95 from China, we're told that they're pretty much all equivalent to each other. And they've had, uh, they verified that through scientific testing and everything else, the powers that be, they're all the same pretty much. And by the way, as long as they don't have exhalation valves, we're good. If I was exposed to bodily fluids in a medical setting, maybe, I would obviously need more protection, like an N95 surgical mask with the liquid rating on it from ASTM or some kind of a face shield or something like that. Okay, I'm okay with wearing masks, and that's the requirement of where I'm going, like a medical facility that has sick people, at-risk people, others that need some type of protection from me or I need it from them. And I also wear them around areas that I don't feel comfortable with. 
I had my family mask up all the time. I took my father to Atlantic City a couple weeks ago. We had a great time at the craps tables. We were in masks. That's the way it is. I wasn't comfortable with some of the situations I saw there. We were in close quarters, everything else, indoors. So I'm headed over to my medical facility this week. This is what happened. True story. By the way, they're getting a copy of this. I walk in after the temperature check with a nice lady. She was like a greeter at Walmart. They make sure I have an appointment. I'm where I'm supposed to be. Right? It's a huge campus that they have. They hand me an imitation surgical mask and tell me to wear it where I can't see my doctor. It looks like a surgical mask, but it's really one of those cheap imitation, low-quality things that you get at, let's say, a... A uh, discount store, maybe a warehouse, home improvement store for like five bucks for 50 of them. There's an imitation. I say, you know, just to let, you know, you know, I'm wearing a, like a rated mask here. Like offers me a lot more protection from that. Why are you asking me to put on something that has less protection than what I already have? And by the way, you get more protection just as much protection because it's a rated mask. We know this. Last year I went through this and they had to change their guidance there. I think because of me and maybe some other people kind of complain. And so you can wear that mask, but you have to put this one over it. So now what have I just walked into? It's called the safety show. That's what I walked into, the safety show. I tell the lady, and I reiterate, well, you got to wear this, sir. Okay, I got to go. Doctor's appointment, I got to go. I put the mask on, and I go with the flow on a pro forma basis, and just, hey, I got I got somewhere I got to be. Now, here's the whole thing. Have you ever been in an organization or a situation where you've had to push something that's less safe just to go along with the program? Whether it's PPE or a procedure or maybe... Uh, you're reading a script and everything else. Everyone knows it's a script and everything else. Now, I understand the liability. Just this week, there was a lawsuit filed in Wisconsin where a child got sick and the school was allegedly not following CDC guidelines. Therefore, the parents believe that the school is liable for their child's illness. The illnesses allegedly spread to other family members and everything else. Now, I hope everybody made a full recovery here. But this kid was wearing a mask. They didn't say what kind of mask, but he was, I'm, I'm assuming it's one of these imitation masks. Imitation respirators, I'm sorry. So the school was not following safety procedures, their own procedures. And if you're in a workplace, you don't follow your own procedures. And you have any type of injury, including COVID, you could potentially be liable. And by the way, COVID does not have an exemption as of today October 14, 2021, it's got to go on the OSHA 300 log, unlike a common cold or the flu. So now, you know, you're not following the CDC guidelines, right? My family member and me got sick, now you're liable. Now, even if this is dismissed, what do you got to do? You got to spend money on time and litigation. Even if you win, you lose. I'm going to translate. Even if you win, you lose because you're at money and time and moral hazard and everything else. Here's my point.
point here. One of my points. Do we make recommendations and rules in our organizations that we know are baloney? There I said it. They won't reduce injuries, illnesses, or anything else just to put on the safety show for everybody. I tell you what, you pull this crap a couple of times, especially in the organizations I deal with, you're not going to be there too long. It undermines you, the situation, and now let's see. Contradictory and ineffective information. That's what we've been, bar been bombarded by. Now, people trust the movement here on the internet, on TikTok. I have a, a neighbor whose daughter has uh, been tested at like 150 IQ, but whatever that TikTok says, she's going to listen to it. Whatever YouTube said, oh, we're going to listen to it. A year ago, I came out with a video before all of this on respiratory protection. Well, hell, what a, I, I, no, he's been doing this for 29 years. He doesn't know what he's talking about. I've been doing it for 29 minutes on YouTube. I looked something up. Oh, you know, this is the stuff. Maybe all this contradictory information is adding to our societal disruptions. Everybody's at each other's throats. We actually had... A couple, no, a couple of weeks ago, a colleague of mine had, more accurately, a situation where people were getting beat up on account of these procedures, physically. Beat up. Wait until we this uh, emergency regulation comes out, if it comes out. We're in for a ride if you're a safety person. Make sure you have your life insurance paid up. Make sure you have your will. Because I tell you what, people are going to get killed over this, or their careers are going to be ruined for enforcing these rules. What's your organization going to do? Maybe you got to get that in writing, like I was talking to Sheldon Premis the other day. Hey, get everything in writing, right? That podcast is coming out in a couple of weeks. We've been doing this since the beginning of last year, and the things are not getting better, they're getting worse. The workplaces are getting more acerbic, people negative and everything else that I visit. So what do we do here? What should have been done, right? We can't go about what should have been done. What could we do now? So what do we do in the future? You got to be honest with people. Don't treat them like idiots. That might be the right way to go rather than issuing rules and making policies for show, especially these policies that give no protection at all or minimum. Maybe, and maybe they're going to get a sense of security, put them into arms. Maybe we, and let make us look like idiots. Maybe we should be honest with the people. Explain what the respiratory protection is. And everything else. Here's something to consider. I, I consider myself pretty well informed. I used to be a news junkie. Since COVID came in, I'm not a news junkie. I don't, I watch the news, it aggravates me, and I leave. You wouldn't rely, well, let, let me ask this. You're sick. You have a health issue. Your child has a health issue. Are you going to go to a safety professional for that? Or are you going to go to a medical doctor? Chances are you're going to go to a medical doctor, I would hope. The hell now. Nowadays, people go to Dr. Google and Dr. Facebook and Dr. TikTok. And then Dr. TikTok is the latest one on the scene. I don't know. Maybe I'm out of date on that. 
You want to go out there and ask a safety professional for medical advice, would you? Okay, now here's the question. Medical providers, highly trained, highly educated. Hopefully yours is very competent, like mine are. Maybe have good insurance and everything else that goes into it. How much respiratory protection training has a doctor had, a typical doctor? Maybe they've had the right to know stuff. Maybe they've had, hey, medical procedure with bio-level safety. If they're working in a bio-level safety for a lab or something like that, okay, great. But you're not going to go for the safety professional medical advice. Why are we going to a doctor for advice on respiratory protection? Either this is a real hazard or not. This is a real hazard. 700,000 people dead. At a per certain point, someone's got to say something. Why are we going to... We have to ask ourselves, as a society, am I going to go to a safety professional with 30... Uh, it doesn't have to be 35, one year of experience dealing with respiratory hazards? What's safe? What's not safe? What's this? What's that? What are we going to do? Are we going to go to that person to talk about respiratory hazards, biological safety, or uh, no, highly trained, credentialed people in this field, been dealing with it all their careers? Or are we going to go to a medical doctor? Which one? Come on. <laughs> this is what the questions we have to ask. Why have these networks? Why have the CDC? Dr. Fauci, I don't care who it is, how come they haven't said, you know what, we're going to turn over this meeting for 15 minutes, and even Governor Cuomo, we're going to turn this over to a certified industrial hygienist to try to explain to us what, we're, what we need to do, what our goals are, what the limitations are. This person has been experienced in 20 years, 30 years, whatever it is, board certified, highly credentialed, highly studied person and all this stuff in science, let's have him or her go up there and explain things. Well, I mean, that, that, that might be good. Or, hey, let's go with a certified safety professional. The certified safety professional is an expert on managing people, managing threats to the uh, workplace, and you know, um, some public health. So let's try to get that person in there. I know the public health service is loaded up with CSP and CIHs. We know that can't get those people up there to maybe explain things. Hey, this is what we need to do. There's not one charismatic person out there willing to do that ever. Come on. Sick of it. 700,000 people dead. And this is what we're going. Millions worldwide. And here we are wasting time, wasting money, looking like a bunch of whack jobs out here. Servile. Yeah, go back to your servile safety professional. We have an opportunity here, people. We have an opportunity to go out there and be the leaders that we're called to be. We have the responsibility, God-given. If you don't believe in God, then from nature, whatever it is you believe in, has given you an opportunity and has given you knowledge and has given you resources have backbone. That's what my message is. So, 
these are some of the questions and some of the thoughts I've had here. Right? On this, the 20th anniversary of the anthrax cleanups, where we've had an issue with a biological issue that seems like every two or three years, and nobody could get this stuff together. I can't wait for the comments to get on this, right? These are some of the questions that we got to answer here. Some of the stuff we have to confront. Be the leaders that we need to be. Take that servile attitude and be empowered. You have the knowledge, you have the backbone, get it. If you don't have it, get the backbone. Now we have a choice. We're gonna continue supporting what we know is wrong. This safety show that we're putting on. We're gonna let other people call the shots or we're gonna have to take, be the leaders here in our society. Be that leader that you need to be. For Safety Wars, this is Jim Polzl. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the host and its guest and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the company. Examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are only examples. They should not be utilized in the real world as the only solution available as they are based only on very limited and dated open source information. Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the company. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored in a retrieval system, or transmitted in any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic, recording, or otherwise, without prior written permission of the creator of the podcast, Jay Allen.